Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. So if you're like me, you've spent at least some time these last few weeks to reflect upon that daunting anniversary. We've now spent an entire year dealing with the effects of COVID-19. And all of us have been disrupted in significant ways and minor ways and having to make difficult decisions for ourselves and our families. But most of us have not had to make those decisions for communities, for cities, and for counties. The jobs of public leaders during this time have been exceedingly challenging. On today's episode, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of local public leaders as they reflect over the last year. You'll hear from Philadelphia Council Member Kendra Brooks, King County, Washington Executive Dow Constantine, and Pueblo, Colorado Mayor Nick Gratisar on how they work to keep their cities afloat and how they envision a post-pandemic future. We'll ask, what was it like to be responsible for cities and counties and communities during this time? How did they deal with the fog of not really knowing how this pandemic would play out? And what are they thinking now as they look to the future? First up is Executive Constantine, whose county, which includes Seattle, was home to the first cases in the U.S. He took us back to the very start of the pandemic last year. I was in D.C. on the night of the 28th of February, uh, getting ready the next day to make a presentation to a, a conference on our program called Best Starts for Kids, which is a early childhood enrichment program. I got a call when I was leaving dinner from my chief of staff who told me that we had identified an outbreak of what was then known as the novel coronavirus in a local nursing home. This was not one of the first places. This was the first place in the United States with a significant identified outbreak. I contacted the event organizers, made my apologies, got on the line with Alaska Airlines and got out on the first flight and went directly from the airport to our headquarters building in downtown Seattle and held a press conference with our public health officer to announce to the world that this disease, this virus had arrived here in the United States. The coronavirus has been confirmed to be in the United States. The CDC says a man from Washington state has the virus. We were flying almost blind. You know, public health people knew sort of generically how to approach a viral outbreak. We didn't know about this virus. We didn't know how readily it was transmitted. We didn't know what impacts it had on human health. We didn't know how to prevent it from spreading. We were just guessing as to what kind of activity was reasonably safe and what kind of was unreasonably dangerous. There was no script for this. There is no rule book for this. That's Kendra Brooks, council member at large for the city of Philadelphia. A former community organizer, she won her seat in 2019 and had just taken office three months before the pandemic hit. On the day the city hall closed, one of my constituents and supporters came to my office asking what should he do for his workers. He owns a restaurant called South Philly Barbacoa. He was trying to figure out, like, what's the plan and what did he need to do to adhere to all the laws and, and still run his business? In that moment, Councilmember Brooks said it became clear COVID-19 was a serious threat and the city needed to make some changes as soon as possible. She said she felt the true weight of her new role. That was like a pivoting moment. 
because being an activist and an organizer, you're like, they need to do something. You know, these city officials need to do something. And I think that was the first time it really hit my office. Like, we are the folks that need to do something. So what is this something? I knew that we didn't have the answers. And it was a kind of a scary experience, Um, especially, like I said, that was the pivoting point when I realized that I am the they that need to do something. Like, Like, the city officials need to do something. And I am one of the city officials that need to do something. So we quickly kind of began planning what to do. What are other cities doing? What does this look like? Who should we connect to? Nobody knew really what it was going to be, how long it was going to last, any of those kind of things. So some of the initial conversations were, let's wait and see. That's Mayor Nick Gratisar of Pueblo, Colorado. Like Executive Constantine and Councilmember Brooks, he was also unsure of how to respond initially. But one of his first steps was to prioritize direct communication with his residents. One of the things I did is almost immediately started making a weekly video that we would record and put out on social media that would talk about this is what's going on in Pueblo. This is how many infections we've got. This is how many deaths we've had. These are the kind of things you need to do to protect yourself and your family, just to encourage people, keep doing those things that were necessary to keep this virus from spreading and getting out of control. Councilmember Brooks said during the beginning stages of the pandemic, she had to field several calls from residents asking for assistance. And these were people who weren't accustomed to asking for help. The number of people that were calling for assistance never had to ask for assistance before. And the myths that people would want to believe that, you know, poor people are asking for handouts. You know, it's easy to put it off on poor people. But when we saw working class folks, like folks that had two and three service sector jobs that all shut down at the same time, um, never had a need for any level of public assistance or need to know where a soup kitchen was, right? Or a food pantry to reach out to my office almost in tears because they weren't able to make their mortgages and didn't know where their next dollar was coming from. In those early days, all three leaders also had to deal with some very practical questions around how to govern virtually and how to keep city and county employees safe as they work to respond to the crisis. Here's Councilmember Brooks. I was just trying to figure out what does working virtually look like, you know, in city government. So we didn't have everything to work remotely. We all had like desktop computers and office phones. So I think for me, it was just like the planning. What is this going to look like virtually? What were going to be the needs of my staff? I decided fairly early to have people try to work remotely. The breakthrough, though, was I, I had a conversation with Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft. He said that they had decided to send all their employees home and to have them work remotely. And I think that was what really set the tone for the business community here and for employers. We figured out how to send as many employees home as we could to work from home so that uh, they could feel safe and still be productive there. And we still have employees working at home right now. We're talking about how we bring them back. And a lot of that going to depend on when the city employees are going to be able to get vaccinated. But we've talked about and have implemented some different shifts so that there's an early shift and a late shift so that people can spread out a little bit and not have to be as crowded as they otherwise would have been in in some of the city buildings. And then there were the much larger and more difficult questions about city and countywide restrictions on public life. We did not want to do something that would be so 
dramatic that it undermined the credibility of our public health officials and our future efforts. We wanted to bring people along. At every step of the way, we had disagreements. Should restaurants be open or closed? Should gatherings be allowed? If so, how big should the gatherings be? That conversation was going on in earnest uh, just you know, within a week. There were a whole lot of questions about schools, for example. And we discussed these things and disagreed with the, about them a lot, even though most of us, well, all of us were basing our opinions more on supposition than on <laughs> data at that point. We agreed that we would attempt to speak with one voice to the public, to sing from the same song sheet. And that had a lot to do with keeping the infection rate down here. Executive Constantine recognized early the danger around conflicting and contradictory messages about the severity of the coronavirus and pushed for local leaders to speak with one common voice. There was a significant danger of people not believing anyone because they were receiving different signals and and thus not really taking the actions that would be needed to slow down the virus until we could figure out what was really going on. And so that habit of us trying to resolve our differences privately continued through you know the entire past year. In Pueblo, Colorado, like a lot of cities, some of the early restrictions became political. Here's Mayor Gratisar. Some of the stuff got politicized. Even in Pueblo, it got politicized about What's the point of uh, locking things down, staying at home? What's the point of wearing a mask? Those kind of things. So there was at least one protest that was organized by some small businesses saying, hey, we should be allowed to uh, open up the community. So it was really a, a sort of a balancing act between trying to make sure we kept the infections under control here and keeping our economy as strong as it could be. While infections may have been under control in Pueblo, on a national level, it's a different story. By now, we're well aware of who the pandemic has disproportionately impacted. Who's dying from the pandemic is definitely related to, you know, who always ends up getting the short end of the stick. We're talking about Black, brown, poor folks, right? In December, Urban Institute researchers found that Black, Native American, and Hispanic Latinx workers are more likely than white workers to have jobs that place them at greater risk of exposure to and transmission of the virus. More than half of all such workers have essential or non-essential jobs that must be done in person and close to others, compared with only 41 percent of white workers. It will come as no surprise to anyone that the virus fell most heavily on those who have been most excluded and marginalized uh, in our society, on Black and Indigenous and Latinx populations, on people who have fewer resources, on people who are on the margins, and in many ways, people who are disconnected from some of the systems that a lot of us take for granted. More white people were able to stay home and stay safe. More Black and Indigenous and Latino people had to get in their cars or get on the bus and go to work and do the job, both because it's a job that had to be done and because they did not have the economic luxury of being able to stay home. Even with the vaccine rollout, Executive Constantine says those same communities are detached from systems that distribute the vaccines. When the government sent out vaccines to hospitals and doctor's offices and all these institutions, they are saddled with the same racial biases as every other institution in society. And therefore, people of color had fewer options to easily get vaccines. So we countered that. And we went out 
and put mass vaccination clinics in the most racially diverse parts of the county. And really importantly, I think, teamed with networks of community-based organizations, trusted messengers to get people in, in marginalized communities signed up for their vaccines. And it's helped significantly. It has not leveled the playing field yet by a long shot, but it's helped significantly in making up for some of those deep-seated biases in all of our systems. Councilmember Brooks and her team also partnered with community-based organizations as part of an effort to stop evictions and prevent people from becoming homeless. For the housing, we reached out to definitely the housing advocates and activists. So it was uh, Philadelphia's Renters Union. It's a group here called 1PA that was doing a lot of housing work. We worked a lot with those folks, as well as Office of Homeless Services. And we actually had to connect with the judicial system here to hold up like evictions and try to get a diversion program. So it was a, a multiple steps to getting this legislation passed. Housing is a huge issue in Philadelphia, which prompted Councilmember Brooks to introduce and pass the Health Emergency Protection Act. Because we were already in the housing crisis. And the first thing we began thinking about, number one, was after we shut down for more than three weeks and people were out of work, housing. What are we going to do around housing? Like Everyone is not in permanent housing as of yet. But it is a work in progress. We have a major eviction crisis here. So that's one of the things we've been trying to work through and build allies. And actually, we have some support for some of the service sector unions because they were hit the hardest by the pandemic. They had the most layoffs and were the ones that still have not returned to work, some of them as of yet. So it was affecting them drastically. In April, urban researchers found low-income renters in the labor force were heavily concentrated in five vulnerable industries where the layoffs were the largest. They included accommodation and food service, construction, arts, entertainment, and recreation, other services such as hairdressers, dry cleaners, and those that do repairs, and retail trade. Councilmember Brooks and her colleagues also targeted gig workers in their legislative relief efforts, who she says were left out of the initial federal legislation. Uber and Lyft drivers, Grubhub, Instacart, all of those folks were the folks we were trying to reach. Being a user of these services, sometimes you don't understand the behind the scenes dealings and it makes you appreciate and look at that job, that industry very differently. Because you wouldn't think an Instacart worker being an essential worker, but they are. And they kept my life moving because this is where I sit here all day. I'm on meetings back to back to back and I can order Instacart and someone else is risking their life to make sure that I'm able to take care of my family. And sometimes those are the folks that people forget every day. Councilmember Brooks found that since many service workers in Philadelphia live paycheck to paycheck, part of her job was to help those people navigate how to get food. Her office eventually pitched in from their own pocket and bought food for those in need. We chipped in. And then we got connected with other services to connect people to like a basic resource, which is food. These are folks that never would have expected to be here and they were devastated. So to me, that was the most heartfelt work that we did. And that immediate response that I know was reaching the people that needed it, even though legislation takes us a little further, the mutual aid was an immediate response that we had to do. And now Philadelphia, like many cities, expects a budget shortfall. Prior to the pandemic, our city here in Philadelphia, we were in a good position. We had additional funding. We, were, we had this amazing budget that we were about to roll out and the rug was just snatched from underneath us. And now we're anticipating a huge budget deficit because of the pandemic. 
Over in Pueblo, Colorado, a different story has played out. Our sales tax did not get hit nearly as dramatically as we thought it was going to. We were down a little bit in March and a little bit in April, 10 or 11%, but we had modeled like 70% declines. Part of the federal money came into to, to citizens and they start spending it locally on taxable items. So all in all, as the year progressed, our sales tax caught up and we actually ended up with 3.6% more sales tax in 2020 than we collected in 2019. So how did Pueblo's sales tax revenue increase nearly 4% from the previous year in the midst of a pandemic? We have a a half-cent sales tax fund that we collect for economic development to make it available to companies that come to Pueblo and bring in primary jobs. Typically, that money is not available for local Pueblo businesses that don't bring in primary jobs. But I decided, and the city council agreed, that in the face of this, when these businesses had to close, that we take $5 million out of that economic development fund and make it available to our local businesses. That $5 million went to about 360 local Pueblo businesses that ordinarily would not have been eligible for any of that economic development money. It was uh, life-saving for them. And, you know, barbershops or beauty shops that were just devastated because they could not uh, see any of their clientele. Restaurants were obviously hit very, very hard and still are being hit very hard by capacity restrictions, but they were the beneficiaries of a lot of that money. Mayor Gratisar designated a committee of three people to review 500 applications requesting grants and loans, and they turned it around in about 60 days. We had that money out in the community, and people were able to purchase inventory, pay their bills, and be ready to open up and start generating sales tax again. It was a really good investment that the city council decided to make in in our local citizens and our local community. Additional funding from the CARES Act last March helped as well. I immediately hired some COVID-19 education and compliance technicians to make sure that 10 of them went out into the community and started inspecting these businesses, making sure that they were maintaining that social distance, making sure that people were wearing masks and things like that. As we moved through it and set up a five-star program to recognize businesses and allow them to have extra capacity if they went over and above what was necessary, those code education and compliance technicians became what we use to implement that five-star system countywide. As the nation begins to move toward recovery with the vaccine, local leaders have learned a lot about crisis management and pandemic preparedness. While it's unknown if another pandemic is to come, they want to be prepared in the future. We will create a playbook, and from that playbook, we will uh, lay in the resources, both in terms of plans and in terms of material resources, to be able to respond much more quickly next time something like this happens. There will be another pandemic. And we, because of this experience, will be able to be more ready for it. So you have to be prepared for the unexpected because nobody ever thought this is what was going to happen. One of the big takeaways is that we need to be more equitable than we've been in the past. But for Councilmember Brooks, she questions why it took something as dramatic as a global pandemic to roll out policies and services that should have already been in place. It just put a bigger urgency around systemic changes that needed to happen. Unapologetically, we have to move forward to make sure something like this never happens again and takes us off guard. Here in Philadelphia, the minimum wage is $7.50 or $7.25. Who can live off that? We wouldn't have people in a position now that they don't have anything. 
that they can end up completely homeless once this eviction moratorium is lifted. So there are several things that I think not just this city, but this country could have done better to make sure the folks that keep our country running, the folks that make up, you know, our cities have the basic needs and the basic needs, like even healthcare. I am not going to stop pushing for affordable housing, diversion programs, programs to, you know, help renters here in the city, programs to make sure we have permanent paid sick leave for folks that get sick, making sure that our education system is state of the art. She says it's on all of us to make sure this never happens again. Everyone has to do their part. And some of it, it means advocating for the things that you think are most important. Because what we saw to this pandemic, the rich got richer and poor people died. And that's what we fight for. That's what we're advocating around. Looking ahead, it's hard to find silver linings coming out of this pandemic. But here's Executive Constantine on what he's hopeful for in the coming months. I hope that we're able to pivot from this crisis into an era of greater caring for community and an era of greater equity. There's a strong desire to go back, you know, back to normal, back to what was comfortable. And we've got to recognize that, you know, the the status quo was not comfortable for a lot of people. There was in this place of enormous economic opportunity, a marked lack of opportunity for many people whose families had been left out for generations. We can correct that. We can take this moment where all the accepted realities have been upended and use it to remake this community, to have a strong economy, but have an economy that is open to all, to find a way to bring along people who have not had a lot of hope and to create the kind of change that we want to see in our nation, uh, here in our community. As always, we'll close with a few key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, there was no playbook for the COVID-19 pandemic. Across the country, local leaders had to write the script as they went along, figuring out everything from safety protocols to delivering rapid relief to budget implications to how to set up remote workplaces for government employees. Two, partnerships with community-based organizations have been a critical part of the pandemic response. Trusted messengers from the community have been able to get people who might otherwise have fallen through the cracks signed up for housing assistance and vaccine distribution. And three, the pandemic's disparate effects on people who are poor and communities of color bring to light systems that were broken long before 2020. Now is the time to think about our opportunity to do better and build a more equitable society moving forward. So that's our show. Huge thank you to Executive Dow Constantine, Council Member Kendra Brooks, and Mayor Nick Gratisar. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights with us. It was a huge honor to speak with each of you. Another big thank you to producers Jacinth Jones and Kate Villarreal, and to Shamoya Washington for her expert help in putting this episode together. And as always, big ups to our sound editor, Riley Byrne at podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and hit us up for a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and my two co-producers here at home. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you have a nice day and, and see the beautiful flowers.